You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Imagine green rolling hills at twilight, speckled with the glow of round windows peeking from under eaves of turf, each opening to a scene of snug domestic comfort. Imagine an idyllic pastoral land full of small, happy inhabitants leading small, happy lives. Who wouldn't want to live in the Shire? But we can't. Hobbiton is just as imaginary as the rest of Tolkien's Middle Earth, and its peaceful society is impossible as any other utopian dream. Or is it? In their book, The Hobbit Party, Jonathan Witt and Jay Richards argue that the good society of the Shire is upheld by the same principles that make a good society in our reality. In fact, according to Witt and Richards, Tolkien's Middle Earth is on many levels a fictional depiction of social, economic, political, and theological truths that our society ignores at its peril. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Jay Richards, one of the authors of The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and The West Forgot, published by Ignatius Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Richards. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we get into uh, your book, I suppose I should have you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your various vocational hats. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I, I suppose a, a shameless generalist is the best sort of descriptor for me. So I've got a background in philosophy and theology mm-hmm. uh, and have been in mostly think tanks all of my life, uh, either at the Discovery Institute, the Acton Institute, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and I'm now a research professor in the School of Business and Economics at Catholic University of America. And I'm also the executive editor of a brand new online publication called The Stream. And I'm really interested, uh, in, in, you know, sort of academically in the intersection of the Christian faith and other disciplines, whether it be natural science or economics or theater, that sort of thing. So hence, uh, shameless generalist, would I say, you know, the nice thing about having a degree in philosophy is it allows you to be a parasite on all the other disciplines. Yes. Well, we at the Christian Humanist love getting in other disciplines' backyards and playing with their toys. Absolutely. <laughs> we just try not to break them. Yeah. Well, since uh, Dr. Jonathan Witt isn't here with us, uh, could you tell us a little bit about him as well? Absolutely. Uh, Jonathan Witt is actually, his PhD is in literary criticism. He has a background in journalism and was actually a professor of English and literature for years at a small Christian college in Texas. Uh, But the sort of most relevant thing is that Jonathan and I grew up together. We are childhood friends and reconnected after really graduate school and have worked together in different capacities on documentaries and book projects. Uh, And then finally wrote a book together with The Hobbit Party. And it really uh, is, you know, is, is a childhood love for us. We both read Tolkien as children, uh, talked about him, and have sort of stayed interested in Tolkien our entire lives. And as adults, we started reading the Tolkien secondary literature and thought, man, this guy is amazing. I mean, he's not just a great fantasy fiction writer, but he's a first-rate thinker. Uh, he understands Christian anthropology and the human person and the human condition. And that uh, pervades all of his literature and even his private writings, his private correspondence, which we have in abundance. 
But we were convinced that a lot of people don't quite understand Tolkien. He's so appealing to so many people that people that Tolkien would really uh, heartily disagree with will often claim him for their cause. And so mm. we felt like a lot of you can find chapters here and there and articles about Tolkien's political and economic thought, but it's so misunderstood and we think in many cases misused that it deserved a book length treatment. So this is really a kind of combination of a guy that does literary criticism and a guy that does sort of philosophy and economics, both interested in Tolkien and, and the Hobbit party is what resulted. Okay. So the idea for this book seems to have grown out of your recognition that everybody else seems to want to claim a piece of Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what we, honestly, that made us acutely aware that what we didn't want to do is say, okay, let's just turn Tolkien into, you know, look at, look in a well and see our own reflection at the bottom. What we really wanted to do in this book is one highlight political and economic thing, themes that we think are sort of unnoticed or undernoticed in Tolkien. Uh, but also let him speak for himself, even if it's even if his ideas are not necessarily ones we agree with. I mean, he was a monarchist after all, and we're Americans, so you know there's going to be some disagreements. Um, but it, we thought Tolkien actually is much uh, more useful, I think, and insightful to us if we try to go out of our way to let him speak for himself, so that he doesn't immediately get plugged into the template of American politics. Okay, so so your sources for this are not just looking at the Middle Earth fiction itself, but also going beyond it? Absolutely. And in fact, we think that's that's essential because okay. uh, the books aren't propaganda. I mean, Tolkien didn't write like Ayn Rand. These are not philosophical treatises. And in fact, he would bristle uh, at the thought of someone sort of treating his work in that way. Mm. At the same time, Tolkien was the first person to say, okay, my, my works are not allegories, but they do have applicability to the human condition, as long as you don't try to say, well, okay, the ring is a nuclear bomb and Sauron is Satan, you know, don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> they apply. Um, and besides which, we don't just have his, his fiction. We have his personal and private correspondence, widely published, in which very often he's answering people who said, well, what do you mean by the ring? Who, who's this Sauron? You know, why did you do this? Mm. And he will tell them. So even though the ironic thing is literary critics know sometimes even authors aren't quite sure what they meant initially and will go mm -hmm. back and reinterpret their own work. Nevertheless, we at least say Tolkien has privileged access to his own opinions. So if Tolkien <laughs> is quite clear about taxes or whatever in his private correspondence, we think that ought to be dispositive in how we interpret it. Good, 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 good. Um, I will say that one of the things that I appreciated the, the book is – um, well, as you say, the uh, the degree to which you and Wit are not just looking into the well and seeing your own face. I, I, I really appreciated the the amount of Tolkien speaking for himself um, mm. that's happening here. So, you know, as, as, as someone who's coming into this mainly as a lover of Tolkien and wanting to see him well-treated, um, I, was, I was pleased with that. Terrific. Well... There are such a broad range of topics that you guys address in this book. Um, social virtues, property rights, theology, economy, um, whether or not wolves attack people, just <laughs> war, uh, birth control, localism, uh, all kinds of stuff. There's simply no way we can cover all of it. And if we did, people wouldn't need to read the book. No, so... <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. So I think I'll just hit some of these larger ones and then some particulars. Mostly we're going to go to some places I was interested in. Sure. Um, 
and then go from there. Um, you range all over Middle Earth in the book, um, into the Silmarillion too, which uh, I appreciate. But I think the Shire has a special claim to be a star of this show. Yes. Um, in your first chapter in particular, you point to the Shire as a vision of a good society and argue that the thing that makes it so idyllic is a respect for the rights of property and propriety. Um, so could you sketch that argument for us? And why isn't the Shire just a pastoral fantasy? Well, Tolkien himself said, you know, uh, told readers, don't don't treat this as a kind of sort of utopian vision. In fact, he was very yeah. skeptical of utopian visions, both the end of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He does his best to squelch that, doesn't he? You know, mm. uh, Bilbo gets back to the to the Shire and everybody's, you know, d- divvying up his stuff. And then in The Lord of the Rings, the hobbits get back after victory against Sauron. And Sauron and his toadies have taken over the Shire, and they have to fight to return that. And so Tolkien was deeply anti-utopian. Nevertheless, it was clear uh, that uh, the Shire sort of had a place in Tolkien's heart. In fact, he referred to himself as a, as a hobbit in all but size. He loved, uh, we know from his childhood, uh, for a few years, living uh, sort of on the edge of a city and being able to see essentially a pastoral countryside. And this is the sort of vision he sketches in the Shire, it's where both books, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, begin and end. And it's, it's in many ways, it's the sort of most concrete. It's the thing in the Peter Jackson movies that I think is executed so well. Um, and so it, it can't be overestimated, but I think it's also important when we're thinking about Tolkien's political and economic thought, not to just reduce it to the Shire, because, of course, the Shire is only one of many places in Middle Earth. And Tolkien doesn't imply that, well, the hobbits are more virtuous and their lifestyle is more virtuous than the men in Gondor, the men in Rohan or the the elves in the forest. They each have their own kind of internal logic and social ecology that Tolkien respects. So he's really got a kind of pluralistic vision. Uh, but the question is, why do we always think of the Shire? Why do we sort of associate Tolkien with that? And I do think it's this beautiful vision, uh, not just the beauty of, of, uh, of the outdoors and of green, because, of course, the, the elves have that as well. But it's this kind of way people live together. There, there's or basic order. People respect each other's property. They generally don't steal from each other. Nobody ever manages to get murdered in the Shire. Um, in fact, the only visible presence of a police force are these sheriffs who basically uh, are reduced to just keeping each uh, various sort of landowners animals within their property. So just kind of protecting <laughs> the borders of property. They don't even wear uniforms. And Tolkien says, you know, right at the beginning of Lord of the Rings that the Shire in those days had hardly any government. But of course, it's not anarchy. It's not Lord of the Flies where everybody's doing what they want to do. What's happened is that there's a rule of law that's kind of embedded in the culture and in the social ecology of the Shire so that there is sort of an if it's an invisible rule of law without an overweening state. And we think that's the thing that it's sort of obvious once you point it out, but it's not explicit and people often don't notice that. But we think it's important to surface it because we think that's what part of what makes the vision so attractive. And we think that's frankly, why uh, Tolkien spent so much time uh, developing the idea of the Shire and that sort of vision, because he himself, if you read his private letters, very much liked you know, the simple life. He liked to kind of what it, it, Catholic social teaching calls subsidiarity, that mm-hmm. those jurisdictions closest to problems should, all things being equal, be the jurisdiction that deals with the problem. 
Um, and so that's we think that's a really important thing, both in the novel, but also in Tolkien's political and economic thought. Okay. One way that you uh, develop in that first chapter is, I think, a really good close reading of Bilbo Baggins' sort of internal monitor as it tells him what he ought to be doing at particular points, um, especially in the exercise of hospitality. Yes. You want to unpack some of that? Absolutely. And you, you see this in the, you know, of course, the Hobbit movie, too. I mean, he's got, by the way, Martin Freeman plays this character. He's sort of, uh, he's hesitant, but he has very clear understanding of, of propriety and what he mm-hmm. ought and ought not to do. Uh, he doesn't especially like dwarves. I don't know that anybody would especially like a lot of dwarves in their house. You know, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, he exercises hospitality. Um, there's there's a contract, you know, you've got these seem to be kind of uh, uncivilized dwarves that show up and yet they have all of the legal sensibility of a, a late Victorian uh, uh, Englishman <laughs> when it comes to making deals and things like that. Um, and, you know, in many ways, Bilbo is sort of the representative bourgeois uh, middle-class English gentleman from the late Victorian era. And, mm-hmm. and Tolkien embodies all that kind of resonance in the character and gives it a dignity. Because what's funny about Tolkien is that if you look at if you look at the heroic literature that he draws on, you know, either the, the great Norse legends or the Greek and Roman mythology, heroes are always great characters. Somebody like Gandalf or Aragorn, uh, but Tolkien, as a Christian, believed that there was an intrinsic dignity even in the most humble of persons, and we see that in these creatures, uh, the hobbits, and especially in Bilbo, these very humble, uh, um, simple creatures, people, uh, persons that nevertheless are able to rise to the level of hero. So that Tolkien is able to connect uh, what we associate with 20th century modern literature, the, the ordinary person and the heroic vision of legends in one great sort of literary vision. And I think that's what makes him great, and I think that's why we'll be reading him centuries from now. Awesome. So, and, and I'm calling back to something you mentioned earlier. Uh, even though the Shire is the focus in a good bit of this, uh, you think you could make similar points if you went to Rivendell or the Rittermark or the Lonely Mountain when, when dwarves are in charge, things like that? Absolutely. And of course, every one of these places is a little different, though. So um, it's clear, at least it's not quite as obvious in the movies, but in the books, even the dialogue in Rohan is different from the dialogue that the men uh, of Minas Tirith have. So Minas Tirith is essentially more highbrow. It seems like a more scholarly and learned city, uh, whereas uh, Rohan and Edoras are, are sort of modeled on the, you know, say 11th century Anglo-Saxon culture. It's a much more earthy culture. Um, the, the, the elves, of course, are essentially the Brahmins. They're the aristocrats, and, and they sort of have that. But Tolkien doesn't, you know, he doesn't dislike that. And the dwarves, except for Thorin and a few characters like that, seem much more like a kind of uh, uh, earthy, working class English people, and they sort of have the this kind of social <laughs> uh, propriety or lack of propriety that would be sort of stereotypically be associated with those sorts of people. And yet Tolkien dignifies them all. There's not an implication that, um, you know, one is intrinsically better in all ways 
than every other. That in fact, there are these ways of life that differ in certain ways, but it, at least they both have their weaknesses, but they both have their strengths in their proper place. And we see that then, of course, in the appendices to the return of the king, mm-hmm. the end of the Lord of the Rings, after the destruction of Sauron and Aragorn as king, uh, and the ways in which people are trading and interacting with each other, but the way in which the Shire, as the Shire is restored, uh, and the the dwarf kingdoms, as dwarf kingdoms are restored, they aren't all made one giant sort of homogenous whole. They they retain their distinctive characters. Okay, no, no not a Gondorian monoculture. <laughs> Exactly. And in fact, Aragorn even, of course, because the Shire enjoys enjoys the protection of the men in the East without Mm -hmm. ever being aware of it. But even after the defeat uh, of Mordor, uh, we learn that Aragorn from time to time would visit his hobbit friends, but he would always stop at the very border of the Shire. Hmm. That's a wonderful vision of subsidiarity that, yes, in a sense, the the far off king is protecting the Shire, but he's also not messing in with their business. He's not getting down into the day-to-day affairs of the Shire. Hmm. Let's talk about the ring for a bit. I mean, it is in the title of The Lord of the Rings, anyway. Um, Much of this book is concerned with power, uh, its ethical use, and the ways it can be abused. And one of your ways of exploring that is treating uh, Mordor under Sauron as a dystopia. Mm. So... How how does how do those dystopian elements work out in Mordor? How can Tolkien help us spot the kinds uh, the forms that the Ring might take in our own society? Well, you know, it's funny because in some ways there's sort of two dystopian visions. One is Mordor, in which to summarize it, you essentially I would describe it as what happens to a society or a civilization in which one person, one agent is given absolute domination over the wills of others. Because um, though we talk, you know, sort of invoke Lord Acton's power corrupts, you know, or power tends to corrupt uh, dictum, the ring is not just about power. It's about an absolute power to dominate the will of others, unlike the power, for instance, that Gandalf exercises. And you see that in in the sort of darkest form in Mordor. That's a kind of absolute totalitarianism where the will of one dominates the will of all others. We might associate that loosely with the totalitarianisms of the 20th century, whether they be Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. Uh, But there's another vision, and it comes at the end of The Lord of the Rings in the scouring of the Shire, in which there's not that level of domination. There is a sort of domination by uh, Sauron and some of his toadies, they transform the nature of the Shire. They chop down the party tree. They put up a bunch of ugly buildings and things like that. But most commentators agree that this is Tolkien's vision and dislike of what, honestly, he saw in Great Britain after World War II, which is essentially a kind of soft form of socialism. And there I think we're seeing a vision of what we might call soft tyranny. And that's the type of tyranny that's not uh, not the hard tyranny of Mordor or the Soviet Union under Stalin, but something much subtler uh, and more and more mysterious. And we think in some ways that's the vision that has more relevance to the 21st century in the United States. I'm not, I don't spend my time worrying about the federal government collectivizing the farms and the factories. I think that <laughs> the danger <laughs> lies somewhere else. Okay. But, but both of these forms of tyranny um, in the book, at least one big element uh, the, the, that I seem to be noticing was the um, 
the use of the panopticon, um, pen, yes. the panoptic vision of government, the the perception of always being observed, and the ways that that works down to the individual subject. Absolutely. I mean, of course, and we compare this in the book to uh, to Orwell's 1984. And in Orwell's 1984, you know, you have Big Brother. Uh, and he, you are seeing him on your screen in his in your room, and he is seeing you. Uh, but of course, with Sauron, he can see into the minds of people that he controls, <laughs> and even sometimes control actually what they think. And so that's a level of uh, dominant gaze that's sort of hard to imagine in any kind of uh, political form. And but that I, we think is what sort of the th- that's the meaning of Sauron in the Ring. In many ways. By the time of the Lord of the Rings, of course, the ring has been developed more by Tolkien than it was in the in the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. It's really a character unto itself. It does things. It wills things. It tries to be found. It tries to be lost. It tries to get back to its maker. It has both of a passive tempting quality. So people see it and they want it. And when they possess it, they want it even more. And it also has an ability to sort of dominate and control, unlike a, just a sort of passive object of temptation. And so I think Tolkien sort of invests his whole vision uh, of the danger of the power to dominate others, and also his vision about the nature of evil, that it has a, both a passive quality, like temptation, subjective quality, but also an active quality, like the demonic. And demons and Satan, they can actually do things. They have wills and can choose certain things. And that's it's sort of all those capacities we see in what you would think of as an inanimate object with the ring. Let's go back to the dystopian Shire for a bit. Mm-hmm. You And you talk about it uh, several times uh, during the course of the book. And there's one point that I didn't I didn't feel was adequately dealt with mm-hmm. in particular that kind of the first step towards dystopia in the Shire is Lotho Sackville Baggins privately buying property and means of production. He buys mills, he drives, buys tobacco farms, mm-hmm. and he starts usually using his wealth and property ownership, leveraging it essentially into the political domain. He, he kind of becomes a de facto kingpin. Yeah, or or, or in, at least I guess the way we would put it is it's sort of a crony in which um, both the political spheres and the economic spheres uh, start to merge. I mean, the best example of that in in, uh, in the Hobbit actually would be the Master of Lake Town, who's both the mayor and he manages to control all the business. And uh, okay. this is honestly the the political and economic model that we think is what's happening more and more in the United States. It's not socialism in the traditional sense. It's a merging of the political uh, so that you get large corporations and the regulatory power of the state sort of uh, becoming one thing. And, of course, I we wouldn't say that Tolkien, this is not a detailed, worked-out philosophy of crony capitalism for Tolkien. It was an intuitive <laughs> thing. But we do think it's quite telling that uh, he didn't need just uh, – you know, a demonic socialist killing everyone in order to kind of develop and invest a, a vision of political tyranny with this. And you see this, I think, in a more diminished way with Lotho, though, of course, without Sauron showing up, uh, things would not have turned out quite as they had. Yeah, he gets his muscle from Saruman, but still exactly. the, 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 first, uh, the first steps are, are, are his. I, I, I guess my question would be... Um, within i guess within the political terms of middle earth so to speak is there a means to contain a lotho or is 
and is he just simply unimaginable from the terms of the Shire in some sense? His lack of propriety in most things is so much a departure from the way other hobbits think that they would not, they wouldn't see him coming, so to speak. Yeah, see, that's a really interesting question. And I do think that, though, in some ways, the, the Shire is idyllic. I mean, you know, we learned during the showering of Scott Shire that no one had been murdered in the Shire for some long period of time, for instance. And nevertheless, the hobbits are not uh, untouched by the fall. They, okay. they have greed. Of course, the Sackville Baggins are perfect examples of this, you know, <laughs> They're not pleasant in either book. Um, and, and so, but they, they, in some ways are not touched by the quest for power that human beings are. Um, they're, they're more immune to that. And so therefore Frodo is able to carry the ring better than anyone else can. But it's only Tom Bombadil that is truly immune in Middle Earth to the power of the ring. He can hold the ring and not, it doesn't even turn him invisible. Not even Gandalf is willing to hold the ring. So the hobbits are still affected by the fall. It's just that I think that sort of their temptation and tendencies uh, are not so much for the quest of power as it is for human beings. Um, and so I think it's probably less extreme. But Lotho, it's still, I think, consistent with Tolkien's uh, vision of the Hobbit. And in fact, Tolkien goes right on and gives us an example of what it is possible for Hobbits to do. So I would say we need to take Lotho into account when we're sort of constructing our understanding of what, uh, what the Hobbit is like. Hmm. One of the tendencies of Hobbits that Tolkien alludes to on a couple of occasions is their very big families. So while we're talking, while we're talking about the tendencies of Hobbits, um, I thought I would bring up that one too. And, uh, you, uh, you and, uh, wit bring up, uh, you, you find a pattern, uh, in the middle earth books that I hadn't particularly noticed before, which is the connection yeah. between, uh, reproduction and a uh, culture's ability to sustain, sustain itself at all. And definitely to sustain its best self. Can you unpack that? Absolutely. And in fact, you didn't notice it, but almost never, no one else has noticed it either. And so that's why <laughs> in many ways when we noticed it, it just jumped out. And we said, oh, my word, Tolkien actually uses uh, fertility, fecundity of children as a symbol of human flourishing. Hmm. And on the other hand, he uses uh, a lack of fertility uh, with a sim as a symbol, essentially, of the, the lack of human flourishing. And so you get that certainly uh, in the Shire uh, at the end of The Lord of the Rings with Sam. But you also get it in the appendices. Uh, Tolkien described what happened in Min uh, Minas Tirith after the, time, uh, the, the return of the king has happened and people start having lots of kids again. Everyone's more prosperous. Uh, everything seems to go better because there are more people in this city, right? Which is totally contrary to kind of mid 20th and late 20th century thinking, which is that you get a lot of people and uh, we all start despoiling the environment and destroying things. And that's that's not Tolkien. In fact, he was very pro-natal. And then later we, we, we learned that sort of long after the time of the Lord of the Rings is written, Minas Tirith turns away from this uh, fecundity and starts becoming sterile again. And we might put it in 21st century terms that they don't even manage to reach replacement rate with respect to the population. Mm -hmm. And we think this was profound and prophetic on the part of Tolkien to see this. Now, of course, he was an Orthodox Catholic, so it's perfectly natural that he would think this. But that he saw this at a time when 
no one was talking about demographic suicide in the 1950s when the Lord of the Rings came out. People were talking about, uh, you know, a population explosion. We're now noticing in very advanced, so-called advanced uh, cultures like from Japan to Western Europe to increasingly the United States, where we're not even at replacement rate. There are far more people um, moving into retirement than there are moving, for instance, into the workforce in, in uh, most developed countries with only a very few exceptions. So we think this is something that's really important to bring out in Tolkien, that he saw this, um, and to recognize that, in fact, it's not, it's not a weird add-on. It, it comes directly from his Christian anthropology. He believes human beings are creatures made in the image of the creative God. So people in the right social context where they can flourish as creators are able to create value. They're able to create wealth for themselves and others. So we're not just consumers. We're also creators. And I think Tolkien saw that in abundance. Hmm. I appreciated the, uh, the ways that you brought that not all, it, not only to pointed out the the fecundity of hobbits and and the way Gondor waned eventually, uh, but also even the the envy of elves and dwarves at the fecundity of humans. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're just po- we're just populating like rabbits. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I'd completely forgotten about that conversation between Legolas and Gimli, where Gimli's uh, I, I can't remember which one it is, but says their works will outlast us because yes, exactly. they reproduce. <laughs> yes, they will outlast them exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to finish, uh, well, (laughs) shifting from talking about the domain of love to the domain of war. Mm. Uh, Obviously, armed conflict is an important element in Tolkien's Middle-Earth books. If I remember correctly, one of his original titles for the whole trilogy as one novel would have been The War of the Ring. Yes. So where does Tolkien fit in old and new conversations about whether and why and how wars should be fought. We think this is one of the most important parts of The Lord of the Rings is that in many ways it can be read as an extended reflection on the just war tradition. So by just war tradition, I mean this long intellectual tradition in Christian theology, starting probably with St. Augustine and continuing into the 21st century, uh, that develops criteria that says, yes, there are times when it's it's not only okay to engage in war, but it's actually morally obligatory. It's the thing that you ought to do. Um, nevertheless, there are rules of engagement so that we, war doesn't mean total war in which all bets are off and you do whatever you have to do to win. There's still rules that we ought to impose upon ourselves as civilized people, both in the conduct of war and then in the conduct uh, in victory in terms of how we treat the vanquished. And Tolkien, uh, without ever having something as tedious as making that point explicitly, if you read, for instance, the uh, the Council of Elrond, which just goes on and on in the book, um, they're talking about all these things. If you look at the ways in which the good guys fight versus the, the bad guys, yes, they're both they both kill in battle, uh, but they don't torment and torture those uh, whom they have vanquished. Uh, we think this is actually a really important theme, and it's really important for our own time because. I think that um, in the modern era, people vacillate between two extreme and uh, also incorrect opinions. One is just to say, 
Well, you know, killing in all forms is evil and it's equally evil. Um, and so if you're going to have to kill, don't try to put moral categories on it. Just accept war and just do whatever you have to do. Uh, and we can pick up our moral categories when we're done. Mm. That's the kind of radical realist position. Um, and then the other one is the pacifist position, which in many cases is very appealing to Christians, which just simply says that all forms of violence are evil, and so we ought not to engage in them. Mm-hmm. Now, notice, though, that realism and this form of pacifism actually have something really basic in common. They essentially treat all forms of violence and killing as morally equivalent. The just war model, it sits right in the middle and says, no, there's murder and there's justified killing, and they're not the same thing, and we have ways to distinguish them. That was Tolkien's view. That's been the mainstream view uh, throughout Christian history. Um, and it's important because Tolkien, I mean, it's not like he had some sunny, uh, unrealistic view of war. He was in the trenches in the Battle of the Somme in 1916 in World War One, which is war at its most brutal and its most futile. They fought and fought and fought for months on the Somme. Hundreds of thousands of people died, and when it was over, the Allies had managed to advance about eight miles. So it was essentially useless. So if anyone would have been tempted toward pacifism, it would have been Tolkien. Nevertheless, he understood both the necessity and and the sort of dignity and honor of war. Uh, and he dignified and, and honored uh, those that fought on the right side rather than the wrong. He's not a warmonger. He didn't glorify war in any sense, but he certainly understood that sometimes it's not just something you have to do, but it's something that's actually the right thing to do. That's hard for people to stomach these days. That's kind of an unpopular thing. Uh, but it's clearly a part of Tolkien. And in fact, some interpreters that we talk about in the book uh, that otherwise love Tolkien don't quite know how to deal with them on this. They don't quite know how to deal with the fact that Gimli and Legolas actually compete for a number of kills on the battlefield. That wasn't Peter Jackson. That was Tolkien. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Tolkien, did that That was his idea. Yeah. If they'd had fighter planes, there would have been... Yeah, the <laughs> little hash marks up the side. Exactly, little hash marks on the side. It's exactly right, and so that's that's hard for people. But I mean, anyone that has either served in the military uh, or has family members that have served in the military tends to get this. You know that mm-hmm. it's actually if you don't feel anything about the justness of the cause for your for which you're fighting, it's actually very hard to maintain uh, your sort of mental or physical conditioning in the in the heat of battle. Mm. Well, one of the uh, one of the controversies in in our current political arena is not just how we conduct open wars, but also how we conduct secret wars, mm-hmm. um, especially with the report, uh, the congressional report that came out a few months back exposing interrogation operations and really shook uh, even even people who were fairly hawkish in the American uh, mm-hmm. political scene really had their confidence shaken that America actually occupies a moral high ground. Mm-hmm. So given that Faramir, who was Gondor's finest, is sure. on the record saying that he wouldn't even snare an orc with a falsehood, how would this kind of secret war square with martial ethics at martial ethics in Middle-earth? Yeah, honestly, I mean, there's nothing that Tolkien says very much. It's Faramir's comments are one. Um, I think we also have to think about the way in which Frodo chose a kind of dangerous pacifism in the scouring of the Shire, um, which was actually kind of brave in the context in order to kind of get his full picture. And so I wouldn't want to sort of overextend my reading of Tolkien on that, but I do think actually 
that what we need to do, and I think what Christians need to do, is to come to terms with the just war tradition, recognize that Scripture itself distinguishes between murder and killing, and so we shouldn't be confused on this, and move on from these, I, I think, um, uh, futile and time-wasting debates about pacifism and get on to, okay, let's think clearly about the just conduct of war because th- we've got some tough questions here. I mean, um, where exactly does legitimate interrogation end and torture begin? These are tough questions and serious people disagree on it, but I think we'd be much better served having that discussion than continuously debating uh, whether war can ever be justified. This is something that um, uh, you know, I think is extremely well developed in, in Christian social thought. Um, and there's no reason to keep making those same arguments when we've actually got really difficult questions to deal with in terms of the nature of war in the 21st century. Mm. Well, I'd like a little more, uh, I think it'd be good to have a few more faramirs in the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> there may be some, but we don't hear about them in congressional reports. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, as we kind of circle towards the end, uh, are there any final comments that you'd like to make about the book, uh, a topic that we've talk, talk, talked about or one that we haven't? Honestly, I really, I mean, just to say why we wrote the book, because mm-hmm. we didn't write the book uh, primarily because we wanted people to read Tolkien correctly. We hoped if we did our jobs that we would help people to appreciate Tolkien more than they even did. So the book is written, as you know, we start out by sort of following chronologically through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, precisely because not everybody's read the books, even if they've seen the movies. And so we wanted it to all kind of be in one package there. Um, But we also wanted to bring out things for people that are already Tolkien lovers that don't need a summary of the narrative, uh, but may have been reading the books primarily as fantasy fiction and not Viewing these is also profound philosophical text with a heck of a lot uh, of sort of background and depth and richness that are, are easy to miss because it is, you know, the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, first of all, I couldn't get Sauron and Sauron straight. All the names <laughs> drove me crazy. Does everybody have to have four names? You know, this is when you're in junior high. And so it's only later that you keep reading these, you realize, gosh, there's a heck of a lot of stuff going on here. And so we feel like if even people that might disagree with us on political issues, they read the book and say, gosh, I understand and appreciate Tolkien more than I ever did. We feel like we'll have done our jobs. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for uh, coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Richards. It's uh, been a fun conversation for me, and I hope uh, an enjoyable one to listen to for, uh, for our listeners as well. Thanks so much for having me. Well, listeners, this is the end of uh, This Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm David Grubbs. I've been your host this week. Uh, We've been having a conversation with Dr. Jay Richards, uh, author, along with Dr. Jonathan Witt, of The Hobbit Party. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Be sure to listen for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.